Our scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah 15, 15 through 18, and this is found on page 643 and 644 of your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take the one that's in front of you home as a gift from us. We'd really love for you to have it. Again, it's Jeremiah 15, 15 through 18. Oh Lord, you know me. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound uncurable, refusing to be healed? Would you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Kristen, uh, for welcoming us and reading God's word. Uh, I will open, or I will, rather, I will add my welcome to Kristen's, uh, and thank you all for being here with us. Uh, My name is Paul Brandis. I serve as our associate pastor, and I'm grateful that you have decided to begin uh, your weeks with us. Uh, We're going to open God's word here in a moment, and as we do that, we we believe that we need God's help um, if we're going to hear from him in this time. So I'd ask you to bow your heads and join me in prayer for illumination. Father in heaven, may your voice be louder than all the others. Speak to us this morning by your spirit, through your word. Amen. Well, in 2006, which feels like it was just yesterday, but somehow was 11 years ago, uh, the band Jars of Clay released an album titled Good Monsters. This album is one of my favorites, uh, and it wasn't just Paul Brandis who liked it. Uh, The album was a critical success. It even took home Christianity's Today Album of the Year distinction. And the song from the album that impacted me most deeply was a track titled, Oh My God, Oh My God. It's a song that observes and names the deep brokenness that we see in the world around us. Then the song questions that brokenness with the emotional petition that is the song's title, Oh My God. And the thesis of the song is simple and powerful. At some point in our lives, no matter who we are or where we come from, every one of us utters the phrase, Oh My God. At some point, all of us turn our eyes to heaven and say, Really, God? Really? What gives? Do you even care? Are are you even there? The middle of the song is a non-exhaustive list of those who say, oh my God. Liars and fools, sons and failures, thieves will always say. Lost and found, ailing wanderers, healers always say. Whores and angels, men with problems, leavers always say. Brokenhearted, separated, Orphans, always say. War creators, racial haters, preachers, always say. Distant fathers, fallen warriors, givers, always say. Pilgrim saints, lonely widows, users, always say. 
Fearful mothers, watchful doubters, saviors always say. The whole verse is a brilliant bit of songwriting, but that line at the end, saviors always say. I mean, that one hits me as most incredible. It's a, it's a subtle nod to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane as he is achingly pleading with God for his cup to be removed. Even Jesus said, oh my God. Well, the song makes the powerful argument that everyone prays. Everyone prays. It's a universal human experience for every religion and for even those who aren't sure if anyone is there listening. Prayer can be that feeling of gratitude, but you, you don't know quite who to thank. That's a prayer half-uttered. Or those dreaded moments of fear. It's 2 a.m. and your daughter's not home yet. But of course, we don't all pray the same way. Certainly not. So let's take it one step further. Not only might we say that everyone prays, but we can also say that how we pray reveals a lot about who we believe God to be. Thomas Merton, a Catholic priest and monk, wrote, prayer is an expression of who we are. We are a living incompleteness. We are a gap, an emptiness that calls for fulfillment. Or I might say it this way, the way we pray reveals the kind of God we believe in. The way we pray reveals the kind of God that we believe in. We're in the fourth week of a series in the book of Jeremiah, Life, a Task Too Big. And so far as we've examined Jeremiah's life, we've seen our title to be oh so true. Jeremiah's life was far, far too big for him to accomplish on his own. He was called as a prophet to speak God's word to God's people, and Jeremiah's message was one of judgment and condemnation. Jeremiah was a preacher, but we ought not think of him standing in front of an attentive congregation. You know, last week, we covered Jeremiah 7, where the Lord, he sends Jeremiah to the gates of the temple, not to the temple, but to the gates to proclaim judgment on those who are entering worship. I mean, can you imagine living out that experience where you're, you're wrestling the kids, trying to get them out of their car seats, and you're on the sidewalks headed into church, and there's just some guy there raining down condemnation upon you? Strange, but true. This was Jeremiah's life and calling. And over the past few weeks in the series, we've been asking this central question, how? How was it that Jeremiah came to navigate a life that was too difficult for him? Well, he didn't do it perfectly, but there is much that we can glean. And this morning, we're looking at this. We're looking at the fact that Jeremiah lived a life that prays honestly. Jeremiah lived a life that prays honestly. We heard Kristen read for us just a few moments ago Jeremiah's prayer from chapter 15. Is there any doubt of Jeremiah's honesty? But, but we must ask this morning, what led Jeremiah to that point where he prayed such an honest prayer? Well, the beginning of our chapter, the beginning of chapter 15 is instructive. I mentioned last Sunday we were in chapter 7, and you might be wondering what happened in chapters 8 through 14. I'll sum it up for you. They're really, really rough. Just page after page after page of the bad news of judgment and condemnation that is coming to Judah. 
And at the end of chapter 14, we read a plea from Jeremiah to God. Basically this, God, have you totally abandoned us? Is this really it? We know we've blown it, but, but don't turn your back on us. We still want to hope and trust in you. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 15. God's response to Jeremiah's pleas on behalf of Judah. The message paraphrase of this verse is piercing. Then God said to me, Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel stood here and made their case, I wouldn't feel a thing for this people. Get them out of here. Tell them to get lost. God's answer is pointed. Jeremiah, stop interceding on Judah's behalf. Even if Moses and Samuel, the greatest intercessors of all time, made a case for this people, it wouldn't matter. God's response to Jeremiah is an incredibly harsh no. It's a door slammed in the face. And in fact, verses 2 through 9 of chapter 15 detail further what God's judgment against his people will look like. Which leads us to verse 10, Jeremiah's complaint of misery. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. You know, when I first read this verse, I couldn't help but think of It's a Wonderful Life. And George Bailey, right, in a, in a moment, one of the classic uh, movie characters of the last 50 years, who in a moment of desperation screamed at the top of his lungs, I wish I had never been more born. I, this is Jeremiah's George Bailey moment. I wish I had never been born. But you know, I, I think it actually, I think it runs even deeper than my life is impossible and it would have been better not to live it. I think it runs deeper than that. Because you see, back in Jeremiah 1, we learned that God chose Jeremiah for this too difficult life before he was born. In the womb I called you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations, God says to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's wish to have never been born is actually a reference to his calling, to what God has asked him and called him and commissioned him to do. And he's wondering, why am I out here preaching to these people if it's never going to matter? And I feel him in that, don't you? I mean, on the one hand, he's got God giving him this message of judgment and condemnation. Go to my people, Jeremiah, and tell them that I will destroy them. So he goes, and he preaches the message, and it doesn't happen, and the people say, you're crazy, Jeremiah. God's not going to destroy us. We're protected. And so Jeremiah goes back to God, and God says, no, yep, I'm going to do it. And then he goes back to the people I mean, it's, it's like a nasty game of ping pong and Jeremiah is the ball in the middle. So I think that, that this is Jeremiah's way of communicating that he wants out. Release me from this dreaded calling, oh my God. And I don't blame him for that. It's a brutal life, zero success, intercession and pleas rejected and hated by the whole land. And this, this is where we find Jeremiah when he turns to prayer in chapter 15. He's a ping pong ball bouncing back and forth on the table. And he prays. And don't miss the emotions that are present in this prayer. Consuming fear, deafening loneliness, deep hurt, and vicious anger. Verse 15 contains Jeremiah's fear. O Lord, you know... 
Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your patience, forbearance, patience, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. God, it's, it's because of you that I'm bearing reproach. It's because of you that I have persecutors. And here's the deal. Because you're not doing what you said, what I said you were going to do, in your patience, my life increases in danger. So in your patience, God, toward your people, maybe don't forget about me and don't let me die. He's terrified. And next week in Jeremiah 20, we're in a narrative portion, we'll actually see physical violence and abuse carried out against Jeremiah. But you read this and you wonder, has it already happened to him off screen? Has he already had to run for his life? He's terrified. Verses 16 and 17 reveal Jeremiah's emotion of deafening loneliness. I sat alone, Jeremiah says, because I answered your calling and chose your word. And yes, Jeremiah is glad for that choice. Verse 16 is, is beautiful, isn't it? He prays that God, he says to God, your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. But it's a lonely joy. Essentially, Jeremiah says, I made the hard choice to leave the party of rebellion. And then I looked around and I saw that I was alone at the party of your words. Jeremiah's loneliness is one of the contributing factors to his deep pain and hurt. The beginning of verse 18, why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. A wound so deep that it refuses to heal. The mistreatment, the ridicule, the failure, all of it adds up to an awful and nagging cold sore that refuses to go away. Deep hurt and pain. And then the outburst of vicious anger, the second half of verse 18. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? God, why did you lie to me? My life is like a desert. I saw you, and you looked like the water I needed, but when I drew near, you were nothing but a mirage. This question from Jeremiah, will you be to me waters that fail, and that packs a powerful punch on its own, but actually, likely what Jeremiah is doing is calling back to something that God had him preach in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. In that verse, God puts these words onto the lips of Jeremiah's mouth, and he, he says, preach to my people that they have abandoned me, they have abandoned Yahweh, and say to them, say to my people that you have abandoned me, Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. So, so Jeremiah, what he's doing in his anger is he's calling out the huge gap and he's naming this gap in how he's experiencing God. You had me preach to your people that you are the fountain of living waters, but as I've been experiencing you, you are nothing but a deceitful brook. What's going on? Fear, loneliness, hurt, anger. In total, this is an extremely honest prayer. I mean, you can't read this from Jeremiah and say that he didn't lay it all out for God. All that he had and all that he was on full display. Which leads me to wonder about us. Do we pray to a God who wants all of us? 
Do we pray to a God who wants all of us? We talked about this last week. God doesn't want something from you. He wants you. (laughs) Surprisingly, incredibly, amazingly, God wants you at all times and in all ways, which, of course, includes prayer. So are you praying to that God, to the God who wants all of you? Or is the God you're praying to more like Siri, Cortana, Alexa, or hey Google? Don't we treat God like this sometimes in prayer? Like he's a slightly annoying smart assistant off in the corner on a table trying to be helpful, but, but mostly he just gets it wrong and you kind of have to repeat yourself a lot to it? Or maybe you pray like a consumer. You treat God like your Amazon wish list. You pull it out and you go to him because you've heard he's got the best deals. Or maybe your approach in prayer is that of a rebellious child, only demanding and taking, never listening. Or perhaps when you pray, it's as you think you ought to pray, not as you actually are. Honest wouldn't be the word used to describe your prayers. You've got real feelings, emotions, thoughts, complaints, accusations, but I can't possibly take those to God. Why not? Well, it probably differs. Maybe, maybe you think he doesn't care or that it won't change anyway or that it's disrespectful to speak to God that way. Whatever the reason that you might have for approaching God in prayer with a mask on, I simply point you back to Jeremiah 15 and other prayers in the Bible just like it. Honest prayer. You know, we ought not forget that no atheist has ever accused God of more than what people in the Bible accuse God of. Have you ever thought about that? And this is one of the reasons why fake, dishonest prayers should be anathema to us. God has no use for them, and and neither should we. Instead, we ought to pray to the God who wants all of us. And and, in praying to that God with honesty in prayer is a prayer that sustains. It's prayer that restores, and it's prayer that forms and shapes us. We see this in Jeremiah's life. He, He was a praying prophet. His prayers weren't colored with all the right words. They were drenched with honesty. Jeremiah feels all of the emotions. His nickname is the weeping prophet. Who did he weep to? To God in prayer. He was raw before God over and over and over again, and that's what prayer is. Church, listen. Yahweh, the God of everything, the God of the Bible, He is a personal, relational, and loving God. Are we praying as if we believe that? Because remember, the way we pray reveals the kind of God that we believe in. So why is it that we don't pray more often like this? And I wonder if it's because, and the quick answer is that it possibly sets us up for more pain. I mean, doesn't it? If we lay ourselves out before God in whole, all of who we are and all that we have, and then nothing changes, I mean, that's awful. 
And the more intimacy that you have with God, sometimes it can actually be harder to pray like this. Because when you get hurt or let down by somebody that you truly, actually love, there's not much worse than that. I don't think there's any way around it. It's important to say this morning that prayer can be hazardous to your faith. Being disappointed in prayer is an enormous challenge. Many great men and women of the faith have, have walked away forever or for a season due to unanswered prayers. And there are many days where I understand that impulse. Many days where it's easier to just keep God at arm's length. But that inauthenticity is vapid. It's not real. It doesn't sustain and it's not true relationship, which is what all of this is about. So we have to fight through the difficulty of honest prayer, like what we hear from Jeremiah, and we actually have to try it. That's the next step. Try it. Try prayer like this, laying yourself out full and open before the God of the universe. It's not hard. I'm sorry, it is hard. We must do it anyway. And maybe today, this morning, you're saying, I have. I have tried it. But that's exactly the point. This isn't a one-off. Honest prayer with the God of the universe is the air that we live and breathe as Christians. So try it. Again and again and again. Well, back to Jeremiah 15. Because what comes after Jeremiah's prayer is God's response. We can't miss that. Verse 19. Therefore... Thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. There's a play there on the word return. If you return, I will return you. And you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They, the people, Judah, shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Another play on the word return there. And don't miss, in the middle of this, you shall stand before me. This is a call, an invitation to relationship and intimacy. Not just anyone stands before God. This is a peculiar image, and it should jump out at us. And it should jump out at us because it comes in the middle of a pretty stern rebuke, which begs the question, what is Jeremiah being rebuked for? And, and you might think that he's being rebuked for his prayer. You went a step too far, Jeremiah. How dare you say that I am a deceitful brook? But I don't think that's what's happening. I think the text indicates something different. I think the key is at the end of verse 19. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, then you shall be as my mouth. You see, the rebuke seems to be in reference to whom Jeremiah cares most about. Whose voice is he listening to most of all? Because remember back in verse 10, he complains that the whole land has cursed him, has spoken against him. And it seems as though what God is rebuking Jeremiah for, what it really boils down to is this. Jeremiah, whose voice is most important to you? Mine or the people's? Because lately, it seems like you've cared quite a bit more about what the people are saying. And you've even been uttering their worthless words instead of mine. Will that continue? Which leads me to this question for us. Do we pray to a God who can interrupt us? Do we pray to a God who can interrupt us? 
In his book on Jeremiah's life, Run with the Horses, pastor and author Eugene Peterson uses the illustration of an intimate dinner gathering with a friend to describe prayer. The dinner and setting are perfect. The restaurant is arranged to grant privacy. There's adequate light at your table, but everything else is shades darker. You talk earnestly and you listen attentively. From time to time, the waiter comes to the table to meet your needs but remains on the periphery as he ought. All in all, a splendid time with a cherished person. After describing the scene, Peterson writes this, that is a picture of prayer. Prayer is carefully protected and skillfully supported intimacy. Prayer is the desire to listen to God firsthand and to speak to God firsthand and then setting aside the time and making the arrangements to actually do so. Immediately following this positive description of the illustration, Peterson continues with a devastating critique. But there is a parody of prayer that we engage in all too often. The details are the same, but with two differences. The person across the table is self, and the waiter is God. This waiter God is essential, but peripheral. You can't have dinner without him, but he is not an intimate participant in it. He is someone to whom you give orders, make complaints, and maybe, at the end, give thanks. The person you are absorbed in is self. Your moods, your ideas, your interests, your satisfactions, or lack of them. When you leave the restaurant, you forget about the waiter until next time. If it is a place to which you go regularly, you might even remember his name. I'll confess that when I first read that line, the waiter God is essential but peripheral, pierced straight to my heart. Because all too often, that describes, nail, I mean, nail on the head, that describes the position that God occupies in my life and in my prayers. Essential, but peripheral. And friends, well, we know this, right? The waiter God can't interrupt you, can't rebuke you, can't tell you no, can't correct, shape, change, transform you. Our God is personal and relational, yes. But we, we can't miss this morning that, that God is also the king, the Lord of lords, the alpha and omega, quite literally the beginning of all things and the end of all things. And yet, we're content to have dinner with ourselves and keep God off to the side as our waiter this is the God of everything. He's smarter. He's wiser. He's bigger. He knows best. And yet, we keep him at arm's length. The way we pray reveals the kind of God we believe in. Is the God on the other end of our prayers our king? Or is he our waiter? So here's the next step. Listen. Listen. Truly, honestly, that's it. Listen. Sit, wait, and listen. I mean, we intuitively know that achieving true intimacy with anyone involves, it demands a give and take, a both and, speaking and listening. But yet, too often, we forget to apply that logic to God. At its core, prayer is about intimacy, way more than it's about getting stuff. 
What if the greatest prayer we sought to have answered was to draw nearer to God, closer to him in relationship? I don't want to minimize prayers of intercession. I certainly don't want to minimize asking God for things, praying to him, pleading, crying out. We see that all over the Bible. Remember, in the New Testament, right, Jesus says that God is a good father. He desires to give his children good gifts. He does. But I'm, I'm afraid that all too often, and I'll be the first one to admit that I do this, I'm afraid that all too often the main thing or the only thing that's going on in my prayer life is interceding and asking for stuff. And if that's true, then we're falling far too short. So again, listen, sit, wait, and listen. And if you do that, don't be surprised when God interrupts. I mean, this is what happens to Jeremiah. First, God interrupts with a rebuke in verse 19, and then with beautiful promises in verses 20 and 21. And I will make to this people, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. And, and here's the beauty of these two verses. This is what God has already told Jeremiah twice back in chapter 1 when he called him. He says it again to him here in Jeremiah 15, and guess what? Spoiler alert, he's going to say it to him again and again and again. Chapters 30, chapter 42, and chapter 46. And this is what prayer is. It's, it's a dance. God speaks first. Don't miss that. God is the first speaker in prayer. God speaks first. We respond. We fall short. There's a gap, right? Prayer is an incompleteness. There's a gap. God speaks. We respond. We fall short. God interrupts us. God rebukes. God speaks the melody of his promises again and again and again. This is the dance of prayer. And so in light of that, I have to ask, do we pray to a God who will say it again? Do we pray to a God who will say his promises to us again and again and again? Is the God that you pray to one who reminds you of the promises that he's made? Is the God that you pray to even capable of making and keeping promises? Too often we go to prayer hoping for new information, but that's not our greatest need. We think that we need new information, but what we actually need is an old promise. You know, it wasn't the first time that Ashley told me that she loved me, that meant the most, my wife. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still remember it. It was a big deal. But it's not when it meant the most. It wasn't even when I proposed or on our wedding day. These are important times. I'm not minimizing them, but they don't mean the most. No, what means the most is it's eight years later and Ashley still says it to me. Because now, you see, she really knows me. Yeah, that's, that's worth a laugh. <laughs> She's seen me. <laughs> all the baggage, all the mistakes, all the selfishness. It's after I've hurt her or ignored her, and she still says it to me. That's when it means the most. So, so do we pray to a God who will say it to us again, even after we've blown it with him? 
What we really need in prayer is not new information, but an old, old promise. I am with you. Friends, this life is too big for us. You can't do it on your own. It's too hard. You will be trampled by those horses. And you'll make all kinds of mistakes along the way. Yet the answer is the same day in and day out for those who trust him with their lives. I am with you, God says. Will that be enough for us? One more time, the way we pray reveals the kind of God we believe in. And our God is one who says his promises again and again and again. Yeah, but Paul, it doesn't feel as if he's with me. I know. I'm right there with you. I get it. It's hard. Yet, in Jesus' last words to his disciples, to his church, to us, what did Jesus say? The final words of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we can't miss either that Jesus himself, not only does he speak that to us, that promise that I am with you always, but Jesus himself is God's greatest promise. The Apostle Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is God's greatest promise, God's son given for you. If God did that, don't you think he will also give you everything else that is truly best for you? He died to make life and light possible for you, and he rose again so that death and darkness will never have the final word in your life. And he will say it again and again and again and again until you hear it, I am with you. So have you talked with him lately? Like a real human would talk with a real person. He wants all of you, even the ugly parts. And are you listening enough for him to interrupt you, for him to speak to you through his word and through his spirit? And will you ultimately trust that his answer for you is always the same, always the best, and always what you truly need? For I am with you, to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Well, before we transition this morning to communion, we thought this would be an appropriate and maybe even obvious morning to practice prayer together. And for some of you, this this time together, it, it might feel a bit weird or boring. For others, it might be the first silence that you've heard in a really long time. Whatever the case, I'd invite you to join us and please try not to disengage. We're going to take about a minute of silence, a literal minute, and then I'm going to lead us in a few prayers, each one followed by a brief silence. And this is time for us to practice trying it and practice listening together. So we'll have a moment of silence and then I'll, I'll lead us through some prayers. Let's go to God in prayer and in silence.
Lord, hear our prayers of confession for what we have done and what we have left undone. Lord, hear our prayers of lament for the things that break our heart and for the things that break your heart. Lord, hear hear our prayers of need for the ways in which we struggle to live as your people in this broken world. Lord, hear our prayers of thanksgiving as we celebrate all that you are and all that you have done for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we lower our heads before you and we confess that we have too often forgotten that we are yours and that you want all of us. Sometimes we carry on our lives as if there were no God and we fall short of being a credible witness to you. For these things we ask your forgiveness and we also ask for your strength. Give us clear minds and open hearts so that we may witness to you in our world. Remind us to be who you would have us to be, regardless of what we are doing or who we are with. Hold us to you and build our relationship with you and with those you have given us on earth. Amen.